Hello and welcome to the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock. But for the purposes of this, you can just call me Adam. Fresh from his um, appearance on last week's podcast, Trevor Wood is my co-host today. He was so excited to be on as a guest, he said, I demand to co-host the next one. So he's back. I have nothing more to say about him. If you haven't already listened to that episode, please do. It's available alongside a whole host of others online. We post the links often enough. Uh, Please do, by the way, give us a like on Facebook. It's um, at Northern Crime Syndicate. And we are on Twitter at at Northern underscore crime. Please do check out our back catalogue and tell all your friends and share and like and review the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast. Um, I'm really pleased to announce that today's guest is Ame Anwar. Uh, Ame grew up in West London and after leaving college he had a variety of jobs including a warehouse assistant, comic book lettering artist, a driver for emergency doctors and a chalet rep in the French Alps. He eventually landed a job as a creative art worker, graphic designer, and spent a decade and a half producing artwork mainly for the home entertainment industry. He holds an MA in creative writing from Birkbeck and is a winner of the Crime Writers Association Debut Dagger Award. Amir's latest novel, Stone Cold Trouble, is set to be released in September this year and, as for anybody who has seen it online can attest to, I have to say it does have a wonderful cover. So Amir, thank you for coming on the podcast today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So what was it like growing up in West London for you and was writing and books something that you grew up with and were around? Um, well, West London, I think, is great because uh, that's where I've been my whole life. And I have to say, I grew up with books and early on I enjoyed writing stories, but then like, I, I just sort of left that behind and I didn't write anything, from, I think, from about... No fiction from about the age of 12 till about 35. So I'm not one of these people who sort of had writing as a hobby or was always writing and hoping one day to get published. It just wasn't on my radar. I mean, I just didn't think I could uh, write a book, that it was something that I could do or I didn't see people like me doing it. So I just never seriously thought about it. And it was only sort of much later when I was 35 and I was doing various evening courses, more to do with the career I had, which was in, in like graphic arts and stuff. And I was trying to learn a bit about web design. So I was doing a couple of evening courses and then a day sort of ended and I quite liked spending an evening a week doing some sort of course and learning a skill. And then I just looked for another course and there was an introduction to writing fiction. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that had always been something I kind of thought I couldn't do. And then I thought, well, why don't I just do a course and and see if it's for me? And then, you know, that's where it all started. And that was at, at sort of 35, a bit late, I think. I mean, I kind of wish, you know, had I kept up the writing from a young age, who knows what might have happened. I don't think you can talk about being a bit late with me on the podcast. <laughs> Not even ballpark, mate, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's a young whippersnapper as far as I'm concerned. 
Oh, well, I'd like to think so, but yeah, I don't, I'm not, I'm probably not as young as I look. <laughs> so, so was your kind of college education in and around art and graphic design? Because the job that stood out, I mean, the, the French Alps job, by the way, does stand out, but the comic book lettering artist, I thought, you know, I've never met anybody who's had that as a job in the past. So kind of how did that come about? And was that kind of your first, I guess, love in terms of graphics and art? Well, I was always very, I think when I left the writing behind, I was still always creative and I went down the more graphic arts kind of route. And when I was, so I was doing art at school and then I, when I went to do A-levels, I did art, photography and English lit. And English lit like bored the hell out of me, <laughs> to be honest. Uh, and art was a bit, there was too much focus on art history. So it was the photography that really sort of, um, gripped me and I wanted to be a photographer but then when I left college there was a recession on and nobody was hiring and so the photography fell by the wayside and I ended up getting a job at a warehouse for a few years and I was sort of working there and then I I was reading comics at that point and I heard about this um, course in uh, graphic comic art and business and stuff like that and I went to do this course and they noticed that my handwriting was really good and they said well, you you know you could be lettering comics like the drawing part there's a lot of competition for but there's hardly any competition for lettering artists so and I ended up doing a couple of comics for well-known comic artists um just short things they were doing like charity pieces and stuff but that kind of got me in and then I was working at for Marvel UK so I was um lettering like Doctor Who and uh, some Spider-Man stuff and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the stuff that they were bringing out in the UK. So I was, I was working on stuff like that, and which was which was great. I mean, I loved that. Does that mean you're, you're writing the, the dialogue bits in the comics? No. So they have a script writer who will write. I was basically hand-lettering all the speech balloons and the sound effects that appear in the in the actual oh, okay. comics because somebody would draw all the pictures, but someone else would actually add the, the lettering in yeah. the balloons. Now it's all done by computer. So oh, That's a cool job. <laughs> I know. It, well, it was freelance. Yeah, it wasn't full-time. So it was good fun, put that way. And it involved, uh, you know, it was a lot of going to the pub for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> All your jobs seem to involve going to the pub. Right? Yeah, funny that. There's yeah. <laughs> a theme running through you. So does that kind of uh, art sort of background, that creative background, does that bleed over into your writing in terms of kind of the book covers and designs and whatnot? Are you quite involved in that or have a strong opinion on that or do you just let that go? No, well, you know, um, the publishers are good. They ask for my opinion and they'll sort of, they might listen a little and then they just go and do what they want. <laughs> we, but to be honest, they do it really well. So I don't have a problem with it. And I'm, you know, I'm usually happy. I mean, I think for Stone Cold Trouble, I saw quite a few um, options and they did go with the one that I, I like best as well. So I'm, I'm pleased. Yeah. And so, so that MA in creative writing, uh, kind of at what point along the way here did, did that occur? Obviously, it was after the, the fiction class that you took. Um, and what impact do you feel that had on the kind of where you you went on to with your writing? Well, I did that first. The, the introduction to fiction writing course was was really good. I found it really valuable because it showed me that I, you know, that I enjoyed writing and I could write a bit because people in that class would come up to me after I'd read a piece and they were very short pieces, you know, just sort of like a thousand word short stories. 
and they'd come up to me afterwards and say, oh, wow, that, you know, that was really good. We really enjoyed it. And so I kind of got a buzz off that. But when that course ended, then naturally, you know, I'm not a, a kind of real hardworking kind of writer. And I was used to just having my free time to do other things. So I wasn't sitting down to write. And I thought, you know what, I, if I'm going to write, if I'm going to actually attempt at some point to write a novel, I need to do another course. I need something to push me and give me deadlines that's going to make me write. So that course was affiliated with uh, Birkbeck, which is part of the University of London. And uh, the tutor, he said, if you want to take it further, they do a, a graduate level uh, certificate in creative writing, which was a two-year course. And I thought, I, well, I need that. And so I did that course. Uh, and the first year was sort of um, split between modules. So there was poetry, fiction, drama, and critical theory. And in the second year, you picked which one of those you wanted to do. And, and I always knew that my aim was to write a novel. So I picked fiction. And at the beginning of that second year, the tutor had said, um, you know, what do you, what do you hope to get out of this course? You know, what's, what's your aim? Where do you see your writing going? And I knew at that point and I said I want to write a novel it's going to be a crime thriller and I want to get published so very definite and, you know unlike I think quite a lot of the people they weren't quite sure they were looking to find some direction but I already knew and she advised me to she said start why don't you start your novel now you've got a whole year with this same group and you can sort of write it and workshop it and then improve it and then by the end of the year you'll have the, the start of your novel and I hadn't thought of doing that I hadn't thought I was ready to tackle uh, a novel at that point and she said well how will you know when you're ready unless you give it a go so I thought okay I'll do that and I so that started around the beginning of October and by sort of December I'd workshop the first chapter of what was to become Brothers in Blood about three or four times and I was quite happy with it and I'd heard about the debut dagger competition which is run by the Crime Writers Association and so I just sent it off. I thought, well, you know, I, on the road to publication, authors have to get used to this idea of rejection. So I entered to get my first rejection. <laughs> right? But I ended up winning the, the overall yeah. award, which was, which was quite a shock. And, and that got me an agent. And sort of uh, it kind of sped up the whole process of then having to, to write a book. Although the agent did say, I'd love to read the rest of it. And I was like, yeah, I haven't actually written it. <laughs> and she said, and she said, well, you better get on with it then. And I subsequently found out what most people will do is, is write the whole book and then enter their first chapter. And obviously, like complete rookie, I just didn't even, didn't even cross my mind to do that. I just sort of entered and thought, well, you know, I'll get my rejection and, and that'll be that. I'll just sort of carry on. But yeah, it didn't quite work out like that. <laughs> and so, so with Brothers in Blood then, so... How did that kind of start? What is your writing style and, and how do you, are you a planner or, a, or not? And kind of what is that book about? Can you tell listeners for maybe anybody who hasn't read it, what's it about as well? Okay, so it's set in Southall in West London, which is a big Asian community. And the main character is an ex-con who's called Zach Khan. And he's just out of prison after doing five years for a, a violent crime. And the only job he can get is at a, uh, builders, a local builder's yard. And while he's working there, his boss's daughter goes missing and he's pretty much blackmailed into having to find this runaway girl. And he ropes in his best friend and together they, they try and track her down. 
uh, not knowing anything about how they should go about it. And then very soon they find out that a simple case of a, a missing girl is, is anything but, and there's lots of other people who are kind of interested in this, in this girl and they don't want him to find her, or they do, but it's not going to turn out very well for him or her. And I'm um, oh, sorry, what was the other bit of that the, question? So, so how did it come about? Oh, my writing process. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, as I said, I, I just won this award and I got an agent. I had to finish this book. And I'd never tried writing a novel before. I, I've heard of many authors who've, you know, written one or two or three books before they get a publishing deal, and they've sort of gained a bit of experience in the process, um, the, especially the process of writing a novel. I didn't have any of that. So I was really just kind of, you know, trying to find my way as best I could. And I started off like not planning at all. I had no idea. I thought, I thought, just write it and see where it goes, you know, and, it will, and the story will uh, reveal itself to me. It didn't quite work like that. I was, I was sort of writing and I wrote myself into quite a few dead ends and, and scenes that, ultimately didn't go anywhere and didn't make it into the final book but because I was at that point I was doing the MA and working full-time and I just had my daughter as well so I was like really busy on all fronts so the book was written over a very long time I mean it took about eight years from the very beginning uh, to to when it was finally ready for publication wow. um, and of course over that time when I got about halfway through the book, I couldn't quite remember some of the details of what I'd written before. So I had to sort of like keep referring back and trying, and I wrote it all by hand. It was all longhand in notebooks. So I couldn't just do a search and find on the computer. So it was, when I needed to find something, it was like flicking through pages and pages and, oh, I know it's around here somewhere. So when I got about halfway through, I thought, you know what would be really useful is, a, is like a retroactive sort of plan of what's happened so I, so I can keep it in my, in my mind, keep the story straight. So I wrote this plan out, and I thought, that's really good. I thought, maybe I should plan ahead as well, just so I know what I'm aiming for. Otherwise, I'll you know, be going down all these sort of dead ends again. So I wrote a plan out, and I think that really helped. But it was a very loose plan as well. I, you know, just a couple of sentences for each sort of chapter or plot point. And, you know, I was quite happy just to, to just delete it or change it however it felt but at least I had some um, sort of markers to aim for and then I, I finished that book and then so with the second one I've totally planned it out from start to finish <laughs> I was say. and the third one and I just feel I feel more confident with that although it's still very fluid it's um, just a sentence of what will happen and then by the time I get to that point I might have thought of something else or swap it round, or you know, do whatever. But at least it's there to to give me an idea of where the story's headed. That's really interesting to me, Elmer, because when I, I mean, I love Brothers and Blood, and if anybody out there hasn't read it, get on with it because it's outstanding. Um, yeah, thanks, Trev. But what I really loved about it was the kind of sense of propulsion. It just keeps going. It's like a steamroller, really. Yeah, that was a lot of editing. <laughs> <laughs> you don't get that at all, because when I was stuck on my second book, I, 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 a bit like you with the first one, I don't plan, and I just kind of, I do now and again end up in blind alleys and stuff. And I went back and reread Brothers in Blood to see how the hell you'd done it, because it just keeps going, because 
I've got an kind of we both got amateur detectives, if you like. We both got yeah, yeah. qualified to do what they're doing, and they're just kind of making it up as they go along. And I wanted to kind of see, and you're and Zach just does the next obvious thing. He literally goes right now. I've got to go and speak to that guy, and then I'll go and do this, and it and it kind of helped me a lot. Got me out of a corner, really. I'm good. So, oh, well, I'm glad. The guy just goes and does the next thing that he would do. Let's let's keep it simple, you know. Keep it simple, but I think that's some of that's down to the viewpoint as well, because it's the whole book is just follows like if it was a camera angle, it would just be on Zach's shoulder the whole book through, and that did kind of that sort of dictates what you can do because you can't then tell the story from any other character's perspective. So he's driving it, and so he has to be doing something, and that's something I remember reading as well that your character has to be doing something. Because otherwise, any other moments are just gonna, they're just going to be dead. So it has to sort of drive the story, or has to sort of develop the character. You know, it has to be doing something. That's but hopefully, isn't it? If you have a one perspective book, your guy has to be there for every single event that's important. You know, because yes. you can't have people just continually telling him about things. That's... Yeah, and and also, it's it's kind of tricky because I know. I, well, with the first one, I eventually kind of knew what the, what the plot was and what was going to happen at the end. But you can only reveal what he will know. Yeah, and sometimes you're sort of desperate to, oh, I, I wish he knew what this character could see or what he knows, because that would make it really interesting. But you've got to just keep that kind of uh, rigid um, perspective where where it's just him. And I think that kind of helps with when you're revealing information as well and it can that can keep because he doesn't know what's happening and then the reader won't know either it's just that you as the writer sometimes you know a lot more and can't wait to get to that bit well I, i've also had the great privilege of reading um a proof of stone cold trouble and you you kept to that one perspective again you? well i wanted to because i think the first book was done in that way so i wanted the second to do to feel the same in that respect as well. I thought it, it it wouldn't it wouldn't feel like the same um characters and stuff if the story was told from a lot of different perspectives. I think that would really change the dynamic of that of that storytelling. Yeah, that's interesting because I bottled it with my second one. I've brought in some other perspectives. Ah, well that'll be yeah, that'll be interesting. But it's always good to do because people do want to know about the other cat if they like the other yeah. characters, then they're going to want those other perspectives because oh, yeah. I wonder how he would see that. Yeah. Sorry, Adam, I'm dominating this a bit, but you know, I love the book, so I'm <laughs> no, hey, I'm, I'm enjoying listening. Um, I mean, <laughs> you've got you really, you've got two protagonists in, in book two, I would say, really, because I think um, Jags is it seems to me anyway to be in it a lot more than he was in book one and i might be and, right. and i think yeah i think he helps out more as well he's he's yeah. doing more this time as well and part of that might be because when it starts off zach is actually helping jags out yeah so it's not in this book yeah it's that with the first book it was zach who had the problem and he wrote jags in and this book starts with jags having well jags's uncle having a problem and they get Zach to help out. And then obviously there's that whole situation with Zach's brother. So then they're, he, they're both helping each other. So I think it's more than just Zach's dilemma in this book. Certainly felt more of a partnership in, in book two, I think. And was, anyway, that, a, was, was, that, a, um, was that a conscious thing then, having that kind of double team it for that second book? Or did it just 
feel natural based on what had happened with book one? Yeah, I I think it was natural. And I think I didn't really think about it too much. That you know, I didn't plan that, oh, I'm going to have Jags in it a lot, um, a lot more or anything. I think just through the nature of the story, I kind of worked out the story and then they were just both in it. But, I, you know, I, I had them just sort of like um, feed off each other. Mm-hmm. and help each other out and stuff. So that all just felt very natural. And, I, yeah, it just, I, did, I didn't overthink it too much. I just sort of let what I thought would be natural between the two of them, I just let that sort of lead how it was written. And so coming back to Zach then, so how was he formed as a character? Um, and kind of with that background that he had, getting out of prison and whatnot, was... What was that kind? Of, was that something that you thought of initially that like that was going to be the character, or did that develop over time? Uh, I think. Well, I needed a character who. I think had to be slightly a bit of an outsider as well to that area because I, although I know Southall well, I you know I spent a lot of time there in my youth and stuff. I didn't actually live there, so you know if I made any mistakes about stuff there then if the character was meant to be uh, very sort of familiar with it and had, had been growing up there his whole life and everything that would really stand out but if he if he was somebody who'd been away such as the prison as he has been and he's come back and he sees everything with fresh eyes and things have changed and he might not get it right then that would really help me out and also I thought an ex I've read a lot of um, Elmore Leonard and stuff like that, and and some of his protagonists are ex-cons and small-time hoods, and and I find those characters very interesting. Mm-hmm. And I didn't really want to write a, a traditional police detective, not least because I don't know anyone in that field, and so research would have been a complete pain, you know, and really difficult, and would have taken a lot of time. And this way, I sort of. I had this character and I was, he doesn't know anything about detection or finding a missing person and neither do I. So really writing it, I was just thinking, right, well, what would I do? What would I do now if I was in his situation? And and that was a lot easier to sort of try and try and write from that perspective. Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely fascinating. Like, and so, and so that setting you talk about in West London, obviously the place you kind of grew up, was it a case of, you know, writing what you knew because you grew up there or, um, you know, why was it such an important setting for your books that? It was important, yeah, because it is an area that I know well and, you know, I love reading books that are set in London because it's where I'm from and you kind of feel, I mean, I suppose much like Trevor, you've written about Newcastle and yeah. and when I, and I've been to Newcastle a couple of times and when I was reading your book, I just thought, oh, this feels really authentic as well. And I don't know it half as well as you do, but I get a real sense of the place from that. And I think growing up, the other main reason that I wanted to set a book there was because I didn't see any sort of British Asians in crime novels and stuff. And yet me and my friends were reading those sorts of books and everything. And it was a couple of things that really sort of set me on that that path. That, that was a definite idea. And one, again, was reading out more Leonard because his characters, as I said, they aren't uh, police, but they're from all different kind of ethnic backgrounds, you know, Mexican, black, uh, white. Um, 
And so I saw that you, know, you didn't have to write from a police perspective. You could just write from an ordinary kind of person. And then I read um, Walter Mosley, his e Easy Rawlings novels, which are set in the black community in Los Angeles in the late 40s. And I saw that you could write those sorts of detective stories with a person of colour. And, and then, of course, there's me hanging out in Southall. And I thought, this place, with, and the characters that I knew there, and the stories I was hearing about people, you know, really kind of were just the material of a crime novel. And I thought, somebody, somebody should set a book here. And really, initially, it was because I really wanted to read something like that. Mm. And it was sort of years and years I was waiting for it to happen, and nobody did it. And then when I was starting to write, and I thought, well, there's the setting. That's the setting for me. I've got to tell it, set a story there and tell it. Yeah. And so, so obviously you talk about having entered that, you know, taking a long time to kind of get it written. You entered it in the competition and won and, and you got an agent from there. What was the route into publication like from that point? Was that a long process? Did it happen quickly? When the book was finally finished and my, my agent was sort of happy with it and then it went round to sort of about... 30 or so, all of the big publishing houses, uh, and they all rejected it. So I got my rejections then, rather, rather than early on. I won the award, and the, all the rejections were sort of saved up for when I was trying to get it published. But, yeah, it, it just got turned down by everyone. And um, <clears throat> the thing That's is... They didn't know how to place it. Is that what they were arguing, Amitha? You know, it, like you said, you hadn't read any crime books with British Asian characters so were they, yeah I, that the publishers weren't publishing them yeah i think it was it was it was sort of very much that i mean i didn't sort of see it straight away it was only when i got because you can hear the comments they you know the rejections come back in drips and drabs but then when i had them all together and it was i think the the sort of annoying thing about it was that the feedback on the book was all re really positive everyone was saying oh, it's really well written it's really pacey it's got great characters great setting, great dialogue, great action. So I'm left wondering, well, what the hell else do you want in a crime novel if it's got all of those things? The one thing nobody would mention in, when they were rejecting the book is, oh, you know, it's got all, it's all, it's all Asian characters. It's all set in an Asian area and it's got lots of Asian references. And nobody mentioned that. But, you know, after a while, when you read the comments, and the, the reasons for their rejections are things like, oh, we wouldn't know quite how to sell it doesn't quite fit our list we wouldn't have the right mission plan for it and then one particularly sort of like telling comment was I, I could never visualize it breaking out to a broad audience mm. so when you sort of add all those up and it's like well okay and I think it was, it was that isn't it a Sherlock Holmes quote where he says when you um when you sort of discount everything that's yeah. uh all the probable reasons whatever's left no matter how improbable must be the solution, and so the solution was, yeah, it was just too Asian. And it's crazy, isn't it? Because, you know, it ended up on, I, I don't know how many best crime books of the year and the century. Well, it was picked pick by the Times and the Guardian as one of the crime thrillers of the year when it came out. And since then, the Sunday Times picked it as one of the best crime thrillers of the last five years. And it was on another list of one of the 25 <laughs> um, uh, classic but lesser-known crime novels that you should read during lockdowns. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, it got a lot of... When it finally did come out, it got a lot of... Um, <clears throat> the response from the critics was really good. It got really good reviews, and readers 
have you know have, have got behind it and I've had fantastic sort of support and and reviews from book bloggers and and readers themselves you know so the, I don't know what can you say you know the publishers didn't want to publish it for that reason but uh I'd have to say they were they were wrong yeah they were wrong well especially I mean you see now you've got Amit Dand and yourself in in Ramamud and Abir yeah you know, and people are loving all of those books and all they of are them. but still you know there's very few and I think it is about sort of, I think it is about changing the publishing industry because I think those of us that have made it, we've been fortunate enough to have um, found publishers who can see beyond um, what they the perceived kind of audience. They can see that well, this is well written, it's a good story, and people will enjoy it. So we will publish it rather than the opposite, which is what I faced originally, which is like well. We don't know. Will this appeal to readers? And and we're not going to publish it. Is your your publisher's um, Charmaine Lovegrove, isn't it? That's pre- I mean, yeah. in her mission, pretty much, wasn't it, to get these books out there to people? It was, and I met her by chance at an event when I was hustling the book myself around when it had been turned down, and we had a conversation, and I told her about the book, and she was like, "Well, this sounds like exactly the sort of book that I'm looking for to publish." So she had a read of it, and I think within. Within a week or two, I'd signed a two-book deal with her. Brilliant. Yeah. And so, and so I was going to say one. that actually, um, I was just going to say it. You know, was the series always in mind when you started the first one, or along the way there? Um, well, I think in an ideal world, yeah. When you're writing your first book and, and you've got characters you like, you think, oh, well, you know, would these work in a in a series? Can I carry them on? So it was in the back of my mind. But when it didn't find a publisher originally, uh, my agent said to me uh, that you know. Maybe just draw a line under this one and write a new book with new characters and let's see what that can do. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I had started something different, but it bugged it, it bugged me because all the feedback about this book had been good. If the publishers had said, "Well, the, you know, the writing is not quite there yet. I, we think he needs another year or two, or you know, problems with the plot and stuff, which could have been fixed," then I might have just let it lie. But They'd all said it was a good book, so I sort of um, pushed it out there myself to get to get it read and to get a reaction and, and see what you know what sort of response I could get for it, and it was all very positive. And so I just kept on with it. I self-published originally, mm. and um, and got it into Waterstones myself, and it was on Amazon and Apple and everything, and you know it was and sent it out to book bloggers. So I was getting lots of five star reviews and loads of people was sort of saying, you know, they couldn't understand why no publisher had, had picked it up. So um, now that I've, so oops, when I did get the um, the publishing deal, the first thing that Charmaine said was, are you working on anything else? And I had started a separate book and I sort of told her about that. She said, oh, that's great, but do you think you could write a sequel? And I was like, well, I probably could, but, you know, I hadn't because no one had been interested. And she said, well, why don't you write a sequel next? And then for your third book, you can carry on with this this other one that you'd started, which is a standalone, Mm -hmm. and which is what I am working on now, right at the moment. Yeah. And so with Stone Cold Trouble um, due out later this year, what's that about for listeners who maybe don't know? Okay, so we pick up with Zach and Jags, who are the, the main characters from Brothers in Blood. And the story picks up just a couple of months after the end of that book. And in this one, um, 
Zach is asked by Jags to help uh, Jags' uncle, who's, let's, let's just say he's mislaid a very valuable family heirloom, which is now in the possession of a, a shady businessman. And uh, they want, they need to get it back. So Zach is helping Jags and Jags' uncle out. And at the same time, Zach's brother's viciously assaulted. And Zach can't help but wonder if this is somebody from his own past out to get revenge on him. So he needs to find out who's behind it. And together, the two friends are trying to get answers to that and try and retrieve this necklace. And things don't go smoothly at all. And before long, they're kind of mixed up in a murder and then more than one. Mm. And it's not just the police that they need to worry about. Fantastic. Can I, obviously people um, can't see us talking about this, but Amir's daughter, Lana, has been sitting there very patiently the whole time. And and I heard a rumour that, that your favourite author, apart from your dad, obviously, was Ellie Griffiths. Is that right? So if we... Speak. Yeah, you can say, say yes. Yes. Excellent. So if we get Ellie Griffiths to come and do this podcast, will you listen to it again? Yeah. Okay, and we'll get her to say hello to you. All right. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. <laughs> okay, that's a deal. We'll do that. <laughs> Cheers, Trevor. No worries. And so just before we go, we have three questions on there that we ask everybody that comes on the podcast. Um, and that fir- the first question is, if your house were to burn down, what's the one book that you would save from, from it other than your own? Oh, man, I hate your questions. <laughs> <laughs> Trevor's pointing to himself. There was one book. I, I, I'd probably have to say um, Magician by Raymond E. Feist because that's the book that made me want to become a writer. Um, and it's a fantasy novel that I read in my teens, but it, it's just such an epic story and it has everything. Like every, I felt every emotion going reading that book. And when I got to the end of it, I was just so blown away that somebody could just by, you know, putting words on paper could make you feel all those different things. And it was like, a, you know, it was like a sort of magic is how I would explain it. And I knew from that point on, I want to be able to, to do that. Fabulous. Yeah. Um, so the second question is, if you were on death row, what would your last meal request be? <laughs> See, I'm like, I have so, I eat anything and everything. And so that's a really hard question. Um, what would my last, I'm, ah, uh, just so many things now going through my mind. I don't know. Let me, all right, let's just say, uh, fillet steak with big fat chips and a bottle of wine. Sounds good. Um, <laughs> and then the last question is peanut butter, smooth or crunchy? Crunchy. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, Ame Anwar, thank you very much for coming on the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast today. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Here we are in the after show segment of the Northern Crime Syndicate podcast with me, your host, A.M. Peacock, and co-host Trevor Wood. Trevor, I thought that was fascinating. And actually, in, in some ways, a lot of what Ame was saying was reminded me of my kind of relationship with writing in, in the books because I was a I grew up around reading and writing and as a youngster I did a bit of both particularly reading um, and then until I was an adult from my teens onwards I didn't do any um, but I was reasonably yeah, creative yeah. mine was music my kind of the thing that I did and then I came to it as an adult again and then it took me years to write the first book much like him 
um, much quicker to write the second book, uh, much like him. And uh, that idea of kind of when he was talking about kind of not planning, it's, it's I don't plan either. However, I have found that along the way, I have to do some element of planning. With book two, for example, I did a bit of a synopsis once I got three quarters through okay. to write something that to make it make sense by the end. What could it look like, you know? Um, so there was loads of things that he was saying in kind of what had happened yeah, for him. I'm, I'm on the other end of it. So I always start a kinship with Ame because we both have ex-con protagonists. We both wrote them as kind of um, from one perspective entirely with what everybody seems to want to call amateur detectives oh. um, finding their way through a problem. So there were a lot of similarities. When I was reading his book, I was thinking – how, how on the surface there are a great many similarities with the man on the street so i really enjoyed it as a kind of you know as a similar process really because I, I had the same with publishers they were like well who wants to read a book about a homeless guy mm-hmm. and i may have well who wants to read a book about a sikh ex-con yeah. you know it's people want to read good stories i think and it's it's our job to persuade them that, that you can write them about anybody, almost. So were those rejections for you, were they kind of more overt in saying, well, a homeless guy, how do we sell that? Because yeah, it sounded for Amir, yeah, it, was, it was a lot yeah, more kind of, it was, it, it was in what they weren't saying, the real answer as to why they weren't publishing it, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, but it, again, it's always in general terms, I think. I don't, I'm not sure anybody, maybe one or two explicitly said it's difficult to place because of the protagonist, but... But primarily, it was about the market. It was, we're not sure how it fits in the market. That's always the phrase, I think, if you've done something that's slightly outside the norm. Yeah, yeah. I found but, it you know, interesting. Like, you keep on plugging away. You just have to keep going. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it, I got that sense of drive from him, kind of saying, well, he, he, was, he just had that feeling, didn't he? Well, I know this is good. And, it's had, yeah. and it had quite a level of validation without even being published. And so when he was being kind of encouraged to do other things, he kind of that belief in that book really carried him on. Now, I think that's really interesting because a lot of writers would go to a different project and kind of say, actually, no, I'll, whatever, if I'm being advised that it might be better to get something published if it was a bit different in this way, I'll try something new. But to kind of stick to your guns on that, I think is quite a brave decision and one that's clearly paid off for him. Makes you wonder how many great books there are sitting in people's drawers that, you know, have been rejected because they don't quite fit the yeah, market. Yeah, yeah. Well, I have a book sitting in the drawer that I never even sent out and never will, and uh, that's certainly not great. That was my kind of first exercise in, in writing something that was longer than sort of 5,000 words. So it was good to blow the cobwebs out, but it was it was simply, a, a we'll call it a practice run, that one, I think. We'll never speak of it again. No, never again. <laughs> so what have you been doing with yourself then, Trevor? So you've been out and about, was it Yorkshire you went to? Or? Yeah, I had a lovely week's break in Yorkshire last week in Swelldale, valley um just going for long walks uh the weather wasn't beautiful but it was perfect for walking so got a lot of exercise cleared my head a bit uh back to the grindstone on monday yeah so what's happening with kind of your your second book and well second book's out very soon so it's all done and dusted the ebook's out in um october so i'm i'm about twelve thousand words into the third book um now and is it the series um, again jimmy yeah yeah, it's, it's the third in the series, um, possibly called Dead End Street. Okay. Because um, I was thinking as well, a bit like myself with Grave in my titles, you're going to have to have street. And then sometimes I look and I think, right, how many street kind of titles can I think of there? <laughs> I think I don't, you know, at the moment I'm planning it to be a trilogy, so maybe I don't have to think of any more. But, mm. you know, where the streets have no name is a possibility, although I think 
I think Howard had a book called No Name Lane at one. He did, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's that's a bit tricky, but and you know, we'll are, see. Are you right. looking ahead to something different? Um, I don't know yet. I'm still, you know, I got a two book deal originally. We're talking about a, the second deal, um, uh, and if that's a two book deal, then I think the, th the the third one will be the first part of that, and then we'll talk about what the fourth one might be at a future date, probably. How do you feel about? that potentially doing something different I'd, I'd quite like to try something different i think that's my gut feeling at the moment but we are talking about a year ahead really so it's plenty of time for me to change my mind on that and i don't really know what it would be um but it kind of feels right do you think it would be crime oh yeah it'd be a crime book no no question whatsoever yeah. um but yeah i've got a few little you know i've got a notice board the only things i do put on there are little ideas for stories and I'll, I'll collect them all up at some stage and have a look at them. Yeah. I, I found it interesting when you mentioned that you actually read Amir's book when you were going through a difficult patch with your own writing. Um, yeah. What was kind of, why was that? Why did that help? Well, because I, th I think I was aware when I'd read it, it, the similarities were obvious to me. And, and what I'd really loved about Brothers in Blood is that it, it, it is that sense of propulsion. It, Zach, the protagonist, just keeps going. He, you know, whenever he hits an obstacle, he kind of goes straight through it and moves on to the next thing. Um, and sometimes he blunders into the wrong place, but the story keeps on going and going. And I, and I wanted to capture that as well because I felt mine was was struggling a bit. This is book two when I was about halfway through, so I went back and reread that just to see what the pattern was, uh, and it really helped me a lot. Actually, kind of cleared my head a bit. I think. So you'd be sticking them in the acknowledgements then? <laughs> Actually, I can't remember if he's in there or not. I suspect he isn't. I'll buy him a beer. He likes a beer. I'll buy him a beer next yeah. time. And so have you got any events coming up online and whatnot? Because I, I think we're getting closer to some real-life interaction here now, aren't we, really? I hope so, yeah. It's getting it's getting harder to plan, I think, isn't it? You kind of, well, with our Northern Crime Syndicate events, I know we've got one coming up, mm. um, but you are starting to think, maybe the next one will be a real one, you know? Yeah. I mean, I saw that they're starting to let spectators into some sporting events in, in um, August, I think. Mm. So if, if you can go and watch the snooker at the Crucible, surely you can go into a bookshop and, and see a writer chat for half an hour. I know. He has hope and fingers crossed. Well, yeah, really. it's always nice to talk to you, Trevor. Thanks for co-hosting today. And uh, I'll keep badgering you about your, your future books until they, they get out there because I enjoy reading what you've done so far so much. So we'll speak Thanks, soon. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers.